the Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome to another episode of Hotel Bar Sessions. I'm Rick Lee, and I'm joined by the other hosts, Lee Johnson and Jason Reed. And today we are talking about the university and its discontents. (laughs) But before that, as usual, our bartender is standing by and is wondering about your drink orders, and I'm wondering whether you're ranting or raving. So, Jason, let me start with you. What are you drinking, and are you ranting or raving? I'm going to have a whiskey sour, and I am raving about an opera. (laughs) Last weekend, I got to see The Parable of the Sower which is the opera that Toshi Reagan and Bernice Johnson Reagan did based on Octavia Butler's novel. It kind of draws from gospel and blues for its music, and it was just an amazing experience. Although I do recommend, if you see it, and you should, read the book first, because it being opera, it's a little hard to follow the plot and all the singing and stuff, (laughs) but definitely worth checking out. Cool. Lee, what about you? What are you drinking, and are you ranting or raving? I think I'm going to follow Jason's lead, and I'll have a whiskey sour as well. That sounds really good. Today, I am raving about minding your own business. (laughs) You know, I, for the most part, like to know things and ask people things and get into all kinds of business that's not mine, but... It's sometimes good just to mind your own business. There's been a lot going on at my university and in my town. And, you know, sometimes you just got to step back and let the people in charge handle it. (laughs) What about you, Rick? What are you drinking and what are you ranting or raving about? Well, I was going to order something else, but I'll order a variation on your drinks. I'll have a bee's knees. And today I am ranting about Republicans in the Montana State Legislature. In the Montana state legislature, they were debating an anti-trans, transphobic bill. And yet again, they accused one of their trans members of not following decorum. And in calling her out on this, they three times misgendered her in a letter and in a series of tweets. And it's clear that they did this on purpose. So fuck Mm -hmm. you, Montana state GOP. Mm. Yeah, what he said. So, Jason, I know we're talking about the university and its discontents. How are we going to approach this? One way to get some sense of what I'm thinking about is, you know, the ideal of the university, I think, is supposed to be neutral. Respect to politics comes up against the real limitation that politics is increasingly far from neutral when it comes to the university or knowledge in general. And one could argue this has been an issue for some time. As such issues as global warming, evolution, things studied by academics have become political hot button issues, and maybe the university has always been a place of political conflict. But these conflicts seem to have accelerated in recent years with attacks and legislation outlawing critical race theory, gender critical theory, and accusations of the university as a place of Marxist indoctrination. (laughs) If only. (laughs) Guilty. So I guess what I'm wondering is, beyond what is driving this attack, how do we want to think about the relationship between what we do as professors in university and politics? What is driving these attacks and what can we do to respond to the increasingly politicized nature of the university at this time?
So before we get into more recent attacks and before we make Ron DeSantis a regular occurring character in our rants and raves <laughs> become a character in the main part of the show. So this is this is an elevation. He's no longer a special guest star. He's going to become a supporting character. Uh, before we get into that, I think it might be useful to talk a little bit about a kind of model that I often hear invoked by administrators and faculty about what the relationship between politics and the university is. And I think of this model in a sort of quasi-Foucauldian terms as being at once juridical and electoral. And by juridical mm. and electoral, I mean that we're often told that we should present both sides of an issue, presuppose that there are both sides. So whenever an issue is discussed, we should talk about the pros, the cons. You know, if you're going to talk about abortion, you have to talk about pro-life and pro-choice arguments, etc. But there's also built into that, and why I also call it electoral, is a sense that the two sides are supposed to map onto the two sides of the political parties mm. in the U.S. Like, it's not enough yeah. to talk about debates between, say, postmodernists and Marxists. There's a debate there, two sides, but that would be seen failing in this model because the two sides are supposed to map on to some supposed right. two sides yeah. and electoral process. So I guess the first thing I want to talk about is – do you see that as a model? And then what are your issues? What's your discontent with that model as a model for thinking about knowledge and politics? Can I just say before we go further that Jason used this word Foucauldian, which is the adjective of the French philosopher Michel Foucault. David, I'm thinking about you. Um, <laughs> and he's most famous, and this is an overly gross summary, but it'll just get us going. He's most famous for recognizing that knowledge shifts historically, and that those shifts are often related to power, and knowledge is a form of expression of power. Right. Okay. So I agree with you, Jason, that there is the invasion of what sometimes is called both sideism into the university. And as you were pointing out, the difficulty with that is that there are tons of issues that have like 12 sides or 100 sides. There are a variety of positions on a number of issues. And so the both sideism is, I think, a direct importation of US party politics into the university because there can only be two sides. But also what is really maddening about all of this, as you also pointed out, what if one of the sides is just wrong? Mm -hmm. If the university is supposed to be, and maybe we should discuss this, a, a place where we're all engaged in the pursuit of truth, then we shouldn't give time to a side that's obviously false. And so what's maddening to me to be a member of a community that's pursuing the truth, to have to engage the quote unquote other side is for me to listen to and sometimes even give better arguments for what is just <laughs> fucking false. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I completely agree with that, Rick. I mean, I'm less concerned about the fact that the both sides model reduces things to only two sides when, as you say, often there are several sides, but more so that it forces us to include some sides that have no place in the classroom, basically, mm. or have no place in certain classrooms. Maybe they're religious points of view that don't belong in a biology classroom or whatever. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. That to me is worrisome because it seems then that we are letting the politics 
politics of knowledge express a kind of power that really the university should be protected from. Yeah. And if I think historically about universities, going back to the Middle Ages, they were church institutions. And so no one is shocked that they were dominated and enforcing a kind of orthodoxy that you had to claim what the church claims and hold the positions that the church holds. But even people who are wanting to ban critical race theory and so on, I don't think they want to go back to that model of the university in which it's dominated by an extra university institutional structure. Mm-hmm. Although I do think that Rick's point about more than both is something that I think a lot about in teaching philosophy because when you see something like political philosophy, it seems a huge injustice to take all the different perspectives in political philosophy from the ancient world down to the present and try to figure out if they're liberal or conservative. It seems <laughs> – it just seems wrong. I mean I do think that yeah. there are moments in philosophy and the history where it is useful to think about there being a debate between two different issues or a contestation between like materialists and idealists, empiricists and rationalists, nominalists and universalists. And there are moments where it's useful to really place two texts together and say – this person's saying X, this person's saying Y, and there's a debate here. But to filter all that through electoral politics, you know, electoral politics in the US represent a very narrow slice of political possibilities, even in the present, let alone the history of philosophy. It is a grave injustice to the history of philosophy to pretend like it's a relevant game to play who's conservative and who's liberal about the mm-hmm. history of philosophy. And what may be interesting is to show – and this goes back to our previous episode on the history of philosophy – how much our sense of what is possible politically is an incredibly reduced and emaciated version of what has been articulated and said about politics historically and globally. But uh, let me ask you, is this a problem that is only in or primarily in the humanities and social sciences? Or is it also now seeping into the so-called hard sciences like biology and chemistry and so on? And the reason why I ask this is because I sometimes feel like the world outside of the university thinks that philosophy and literature – maybe even history and sociology, that these are all wishy-washy and the facts and the truth is up for grabs. And so whatever we teach is just going to be our belief, and that turns our teaching into a form of indoctrination. But, you know, starting with debates about the human impact on the climate and then going through the pandemic— I wonder if that same politicization is not seeping into the hard sciences Mm -hmm. as well. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, and that's, I think, one of the other big issues with the problem with this both sides thing is that, you know, there is a whole sort of field of study called agnotology, right? The production of doubt, made most famous by Naomi Oreskes and Eric Conway's book, Merchants of Doubt. Where they show that with respect to certain things like – well, first one was, of course, tobacco use and cancer, but then it later became global warming and burning of fossil fuels, that it's very easy to create the appearance of a debate by elevating certain outside idiosyncratic perspectives as long as you have a small group of scientists saying, maybe it's not global warming. Maybe this always happens or maybe you know these are – 
long scale cycles of change of climate, as long as you have someone saying that, you can pretend like there is a debate, right? It's very easy to make it appear as if there is a debate by simply finding and broadcasting the view of some outside person. It's like that famous gum ad, right? Fortified dentists <laughs> <Yeah>. recommend <laughs> dentine sugar-free gum for those who chew gum. Yeah. And as long as you could have that fourth dentist, who knows what the hell they were thinking. I mean, they were probably saying don't chew gum, but who knows? As long as you had that fourth dentist, you could always make it appear as if there's a debate. And I feel like that's been happening in the sciences where you have – whole fields of study like intelligent design and so on, which exists primarily to make it appear like there's a debate in a field where there is largely really consensus. Mm-hmm. And if your idea is teach the debate, it's always easy to generate a condition under which it can appear that there's a debate. Mm. Yeah. And I do want to say, of course, it is a skill that we try to develop in our students to be able to imagine a side other than the ones they're adopting, to be able to imagine, for example, objections to the argument that they're making or to try to understand positions that they don't hold. And that is an important skill. And we do that in the classroom. But as Jason was just saying, I do think you're right that when we are forced to present everything as a debate, it often means making something that's not really an argument worth considering worthy of considering, right? Because it's coming from the front of the classroom. But do you think that this is related to a kind of misunderstanding of how theory works both in humanities and social sciences and also in the hard sciences. So there might be a theory of relativity, and the general public seems to take that to mean shit's up for grabs. This is just a theory, you know, Mm -hmm. and there's a misunderstanding about the way in which theory propels investigation, in which theory seeks out confirmation, or better still, I think people don't understand what science really likes is disconfirmation. So mm-hmm. if they can find evidence that the theory is false, that's even better, because there's not really going to be evidence that it's true. And I wonder like, that if it's all just theory, then any crackpot could say whatever idiotic thing they want. And now that's a side. And now suddenly we're called upon to teach that side of the debate. Right. I mean, in some ways, teaching the debate is evidence of a misunderstanding of what theory does, right? Because when you teach the debate, what you're teaching are the conclusions of theoretical positions and not how it is that those positions were constructed or were arrived at. And I think the other thing that's often happening in these contexts is the idea that there is something like raw knowledge without theory. Right. 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 As if you could just know the facts and present the facts. And you even see this in some of the language of like in Florida, House Bill 999 argues that they should present just facts about social relations, history, etc. And I mean, the thing about that is that, yeah, okay, so what are you going to give people like tons and tons of raw data about like (laughs) everything that's ever happened? (laughs) Piles of statistics about births and deaths and income and religious beliefs and whatever else that would make up a kind of an account of, say, US history, it would be unmanageable, right? I mean, any attempt to select 
what is relevant in terms of talking about history or in terms of even talking about the natural world in terms of what you focus on is already itself a theoretical framing yeah. of that evidence. No one can take in all the raw data that would supposedly be unfiltered, unmediated. The very act of saying this is important, that's not important, is to some extent a kind of theoretical choice, or it has to do with a theory of some kind of causal pertinence or something determines your selection. So the idea of a non-theoretical way of looking at the world is kind of meaningless. Yeah. And I think that if you did just have that as you said, like accumulation of raw data and facts, I don't think that what you would have is knowledge in a meaningful mm -hmm. sense. And I think that what we're trying to do here in the university is advance knowledge. And as Jason was saying earlier, when we reduce it to the model of two-party system electoral politics, then what comes out of it is not knowledge in a meaningful sense. It's just a side, a vote. Right. And often <laughs> it makes one dumber. <laughs> rather than acquiring uh, yeah. knowledge. I mean, I hate to pull the BS philosophical move, but the very notion that theory is the problem and the solution to the problem is just to gather facts, that itself is a theory. And so I think this just proves your point, Jason, that there is no neutral view from nowhere in which facts just appear, or maybe they do appear, but I think, Lee, this is where you were going. What doesn't appear is their meaning, their significance, mm -hmm. their origin, and their relations. That never just mm -hmm. appears. That has to be investigated, and one needs a theory and a method in order to figure out what the facts are facts of. Yeah, I kind of want to circle us back to the actual university, though, mm -hmm. and why this is a problem in the university and not, for example, at the bar when you're talking to your friends about something. I think we all understand in our normal exchanges of knowledge <laughs> that we don't have to present both sides. <laughs> yeah, but also in the bar, you know, go back and listen to our episode on the bar. But in the bar, isn't the common pursuit there not a pursuit of knowledge? There may be political discussions, but there the pursuit is to convince someone else and actually have the debate, not to teach the debate. Yeah. Therefore, I present my side, you present your side, and we hash it out. In the old days, this is why bartenders used to keep the Guinness Book of World Records and the Book of Lists behind the bar, because we'd get into arguments about facts and argue them for three hours in a bar. And finally, the yeah. bartenders are like, no, look, there are actual facts. But, you know, even in our other kind of garden variety, everyday quotidian discussions with people, you know, if I stop at a gas station and ask for directions, I don't want every possible way to get to where I'm going. You know, I just I assume that when I'm asking for that knowledge, what you're going to give me is the best way to go. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah, that's yeah. a great point. And if they start out by saying, take a plane to Spain, yeah, right. then that's also a way to get where you're going. Yeah. Well, to your question, I think there is this underlying assumption that the university is, in some cases, it is a public institution or whatever that means in our current society. But there's this idea that it should reflect the existing values and ideals of the public, right? You sometimes see this weird panic around the number of faculty who are registered Democrat versus registered Republican mm. in the sense that it should match the overall 
demographic breakdown of society. And if it's off, then there's something wrong with the university and something should be done, right? So there's this idea that the university should represent society as it exists and all the perspectives in society should have a place in the university. But as we should have been saying, and as Rick was saying earlier, that suggests that all those perspectives are themselves valid with respect to knowledge. It might not be the case. This is one of the things we see accelerating now is that given that we have a political party in this country, I won't say which one, to be fair, uh, <laughs> that has seemed to depart it not just from theories of evolution and global warming, but also issues like how many people were at an inauguration event <laughs> and other fundamental, observable, empirical, I would even say, facts, then of course you would expect that that political position would not be well represented in an institution which is supposed to care about truth, dare I say it. I can't figure out what party you're talking about. <laughs> and isn't that what it really comes down to is that some people believe that what university professors are doing is not imparting knowledge, but indoctrinating. Right. But when I hear those kinds of things, I often think to myself, wow, I wish I had that much power. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I wish that we impacted students in the way that were being portrayed by some popular media, especially media like Fox and even worse. Uh, maybe I'm doing it wrong, but I never have had the power to turn my students into communists. Um, as much as I may try, it just doesn't work. I know you're joking there, Rick, because you wouldn't really want to do that, no, right? I, I mean, not. how boring would your classes be uh, yeah. if you were just indoctrinating? And one of the other things that really bothers me about this belief that all education is indoctrination is that it misrepresents in a fundamental way why there might be a lot of people who, I'm going to say, think Marx might have something to say, because I think the number of supposed Marxists on college campuses is greatly exaggerated. Yeah, definitely. But I do think there are a considerable number of people who might assign some Marx in a class, who think that Marx is worth reading even if they themselves are not Marxist, right? And I think that one of the things that happens when that fact is represented, it assumes the only reason they're doing this is for political reasons, because of indoctrination. And not, it seems to me, that a bunch of people who think a lot about politics economics, history, etc., think that Marx has something to contribute to that, right? I think one of the things that troubles me about these, they're not really issues of consensus, but issues of some agreement around certain things that are perceived as political or controversial, is that it forgets a simpler explanation. Like, why are a bunch of people at a university interested in X? And it forgets a quicker Occam's razor explanation that maybe they're interested in X because they think X has something to contribute in the pursuit of knowledge. And this, mm -hmm. this other explanation comes up. They're interested in X because of politics or political indoctrination, right? That seems to be the often assumed explanation. And the other explanation is never even mentioned. Mm -hmm. The explanation that maybe a bunch of people in the university are interested in X because X has something to contribute to whatever it is they're trying to understand. 
And I think this then dovetails nicely with your point about there is no non-theoretical access, because another way to answer Lee's question about why we don't present the debate in a bar or in our everyday conversations, I think the other part of that answer is because we're also teaching skills and methods for accessing knowledge and accessing the truth, which I'm not doing in my daily life. So I might have a political debate about, you know, whether Johnson or Lightfoot is the better candidate for mayor and their policies and blah, blah, blah. But I'm not presenting the person I'm speaking with, you know, methods of critical reading and how to put together an argument and so on. And so part of what we're doing in philosophy is not just teaching the truth, but we're teaching now the emphasis on pursuit. We're teaching the pursuit of truth, which requires all sorts of things that are not facts in the world like tables and chairs. Do you want more hotel bar sessions in your life? Is one episode a week not enough? Or do you just need something to do while avoiding eye contact with strangers on the bus? Well, you're in luck. You can follow us on Twitter at Hotel Bar Sessions. There, you can also find the Twitter handles of each individual host. Follow your favorite or collect them all. Remember, parasocial is the new antisocial. Jason, earlier you mentioned this bill, or actually it turns out to be a series of bills that have been passed or are currently being debated in Florida, like the Don't Say Gay bill and the anti-critical race theory bill and so on. And I should tell our listener that when Jason sent us his ideas about how we're going to go about this podcast, he entitled one section, Florida Man or Florida Man. (laughs) I would add fucking Florida, man. (laughs) So let's be fair to Florida. This is going on also in Texas and North Dakota and Tennessee. Tennessee. So they're certainly not alone in this. But I think this is a really obvious and pointed example of the way in which the university is being engaged by political forces outside the university. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how we're going to get past some of these legislative moves by states like Florida and Tennessee and Texas. You know, when the state legislature begins to dictate the curriculum of universities, I think we've jumped the shark, really, really, really jumped the shark. And in this case, we're being told that the university can't include subjects of serious scholarship about which the people banning them in the legislature's clearly know nothing. Zero. And I think critical race theory here is the obvious example. You know, what is the obsession with CRT on the right? Clearly, no one is teaching critical race theory, a legal theory, right, to fifth graders. (laughs) Yeah, in the fifth grade tort class, they're teaching critical race theory. Also, I think what proves your point, Lee, that they know nothing about what they're talking about is House Bill 1999 has in it the requirement that universities, quote, remove from its programs any major or minor that is based on or otherwise utilizes pedagogical methodology associated with critical theory. 
And then it goes on and it talks about critical race theory and critical gender theory and so on. But they start out just with critical theory. Now, how many of these legislators are in the weeds reading Adorno's negative dialectics or Horkheimer's, you know, the eclipse of reason or Jürgen Habermas's theory of communicative action? And so they have no idea what they're talking about, that critical race theory is not just a version of critical theory. It's a different thing altogether. Right. They don't know what they're talking about, but I do think that they have been taken up in a very targeted and very intentional political campaign. I mean, if you read interviews with Christopher Rufo, who's one of the big people who's pushed this idea of being opposed to critical race theory, and he said this in an interview in The New Yorker, which we'll link to, he said, like, critical race theory, it has critical... And people don't like being critical. They don't like being criticized. It has race. And people don't like to think of themselves as belonging to a race. They think of themselves as being individuals. And it has theory. And people in the U.S. don't like theory. They like, you know, practical. They like being empirical. So it is pretty much a perfectly put together set of words. And and he says, bonus, critical race theory is an actual thing primarily taught in legal programs by people like Kimberly Crenshaw and others. So the The association of all discussions about race with critical race theory is an attempt to sort of use the negative – I mean it's almost like a targeted – in the same way that a political campaign would pick particular words that don't test well and they make this thing called critical race theory. I mean, it does have something to do with critical theory, but that's a complicated set of questions as well. It'd be a longer discussion to get into the history of how this has become the watchword. But I think part of this history really has to do with the right has been trying to come up with something to respond to Black Lives Matter, something to respond to the critical awareness that Black Lives Matter has brought into American politics, especially on the part of college-age students and younger. Yeah. But, of course, those people, they weren't reading critical race theory. They were doing things. I mean, do you want to talk about empirical evidence? They were watching things like the video of the death of George Floyd and others. They were actually seeing something with their eyes that for a long time, pre the invention of the cell phone, was a lot easier to sweep under the rug and hide and has become much more visible. But I do think that critical race theory is an attempt to respond to that. And it's simultaneously misguided and well-positioned at the same time, right? I mean, I do think in my heart of hearts and in my tattoo, I'm a Spinozist. And I always think (laughs) about Spinoza's proposition that Inadequate ideas follow from the same necessity as adequate ideas. Like even a confused apprehension of what is going on has causal conditions behind it. And if we think enough, we can understand what those are. So I'm, I'm never quite satisfied with saying, ha ha, you dummies think critical race theory is taught in primary schools because I think that That misunderstands the way in which critical race theory has been targeted and picked up upon and has done things that, you know, I've been around long enough to know there have always been discussions about things like, oh, the postmodernism is ruining the kids or this or that, the political (laughs) correctness, etc. But none of those got the level of legislative force behind them. And critical race theory has been able to do what previous panics about the university were unable to do. A big part of that has to do with 
you know, one of the things that I'm, I've been thinking a lot because I'm teaching a seminar on race, class, and gender, and we read Sylvia Winter. Mm-hmm. You know, Sylvia Winter says, and I'm going to really simplify her ideas here, that there's a limited progress that societies can make about knowledge when the knowledge is in some sense implicated with how they represent and justify their social order. She makes this argument, it's a very interesting argument about why it was that Aristotle couldn't discover modern physics because things like the placement of the stars in the universe was too much implicated within their understanding of their place in the universe. And it took a kind of process by which the stars were different to our place in the universe for us to be able to make those sort of discoveries. And I think to some extent, also teaching Stuart Hall, and he says, look, you know, Stuart Hall says at one point, look, the race thing, we've figured it out. Race means nothing biologically. All you know by the color of skin and texture of hair is that someone has that skin color or that hair texture. You know nothing else about them in terms of intelligence, morality, etc. But why has this fact not taken hold and why are people constantly saying the opposite? And I think the answer is because race, unlike other things we might study in the university, is still very much implicated within how we justify our own social order. Sorry, I kind of went off on multiple tangents there. But that is why (laughs) the fact that race doesn't exist biologically has never really taken hold because race very much exists at the level of social structure in our day-to-day life. I have a question for you, Jason. I mean, given these laws that are being passed or at least being pushed through various state legislatures, how do you square that with what we were talking about in the first segment? Because in the first segment – You were making the argument that we have this model forced on us that forces us to teach the debate, the both sides-ism. And here we have laws that are saying, here are the sides that you cannot teach, right? Mm -hmm. You cannot teach this side. And so, you know, it it does seem to me that these are two different models. Mm -hmm. And this is in part why we should be very worried about the spread of this second model. It's not both sides-ism anymore. It is an indoctrination. Right. It is an indoctrination which often presents itself as a counter-indoctrination, right? Mm-hmm. What I mean, one of the things that comes up in a lot of these bills is, and I think this is in the Texas bill, prohibits anyone from compelling any belief. And I always look at that and I think, I'm not compelling anyone to believe so anything. Weird. But I do think yeah. it's an indoctrination that presents itself as a counter-indoctrination. But I think you're right. It's a massive step backwards from the both sides model. It is actually dictating teaching a specific side. Mm -hmm. I think you put your finger on this earlier, Jason. If we don't have a theoretical model that is something on the order of critical race theory, and also including critical race theory, without theoretical models like these, then all we're left with is, oh, Breonna Taylor got killed, Brown got killed, and on and on. And we have a series of just isolated incidents that never present themselves as being able to be explained by something like the pervasiveness of an idea of race within United States culture. And I think, I mean, I don't want to say that the people putting forward these bills are intelligent in this way, but I think one of the effects that is very productive for what they want to produce is that we no longer are able to explain why it is that police brutality and now as we're seeing extrajudicial violence is being wreaked on bodies of color in ways that it is not happening to white bodies. 
oh, that guy did that bad thing to that person. Oh, another guy, he just did that bad thing to another person. And there's no way to ever explain it. And that's all to the good, I think, for the people in the Florida legislature who are putting forward these bills. Or worse, I think you're right. If you remove critical theories about this, the worst thing could happen is you would look at something like the number of people with black or brown skin who are in prison, and you would conclude, oh, there must be some – you conclude racism, basically. It would, mm. it, in some sense, dictates – I mean, that by throwing off critical perspectives, which try to explain how it is we got to the situation we are in terms of policing, in terms of underdevelopment of urban areas and everything else, it doesn't dictate, but at least it legitimates a particular racist common sense. And that's the thing that I'm most afraid of is in some sense, by saying you can't think critically about this, all you can do is sort of engage with your immediate perceptions of what happens and without being able to understand your immediate perceptions and the conditions of them, it really paves the way for not just an incoherent individual this and that, but like a pattern that would in some sense add up to a racist understanding of society. Yeah, and similarly, the banning of things like what loosely gets called queer theory or mm -hmm. critical gender studies, et cetera, you know, by banning things like that in the exact same way that you just mentioned with racism, it inevitably will lead people to conclude, you know, absent this critical understanding of gender and sexuality, that they're trans or non-binary or queer classmates are just freaks or, mm -hmm. you know, are perverts or, you know, something that is fundamentally transphobic and homophobic. And this points to the thing I think we need to resist that was raised earlier, namely that, well, let me put it positively. Our society has invested some amount of resources freeing people like the three of us from having to make widgets or work in the coal mine. And the reason why these resources are invested is because in order to understand, one has to have the space and the time to reflect on facts, to reflect on society. And that means have a theory and so on. And so the university should not reflect society, it should be a reflection on society. And that means that there has to be this freedom to put forward an idea like critical race theory that helps to explain facts that otherwise without the theory would appear random, or as you and Jason have been pointing out, the explanation will be a racist explanation or a homophobic or transphobic explanation rather than one that reflects on structures that lead to the facts being what they are. And so I think we sometimes get embarrassed that we've been given what is a kind of luxury, but I think we need to own it and say that this time we've been given, this space we've been given, the libraries we've been given, and the labs, and so on, they're only going to be beneficial to you, the rest of the society, if you let us pursue the truth in the best way that we can, given the resources you've given us. In other words, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and going back to that clause that Jason mentioned from one of those legislative bills earlier that forbade anyone to force a student to believe something, <laughs> you know, parents, if you're spending money for your child to go to a college that is forcing them to believe something, then 
first of all, you're wasting your money. And second of all, like there's something wrong with your child. I mean, I can't, I mean, just think back to your own experience in the classroom. Were you ever forced to believe anything? No, you were convinced or persuaded or the opposite, unconvinced or dissuaded. I'm really shocked how little people understand about what actually goes on inside a classroom. And people who have been in classrooms, as you say, they were students in a classroom. Yeah. But also the irony of all of this is there are, in fact, institutions that attempt to compel belief, but they're all on the conservative side. They're all right-wing, mm. many of them evangelical, fundamentalist, Christian institutions that really their main goal is compelling belief. And I believe a few of these are in Florida itself. <laughs> <laughs> Florida man. Florida man. <laughs> Hey, we couldn't hear you while you were shouting into your headphones. So if you have feedback or suggestions for future topics, or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, or in fact all of us, just visit us at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and click on the interactive page. If you want to belly up to the bar with us, at least virtually, you can always email an audio clip to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. If it's interesting, we're going to steal it from you. If it's not, we'll send you our Venmo handles and you can virtually buy us a drink. So I know we're not a wonky show and we don't usually get into policy, but I do think in this context, it's worth looking at the way in which a lot of these bills sort of use a language that it seems like they are in some sense invoking or at least acknowledging that one should be anti-racist. Apparently, an early version, this is no longer in the version of HB 999 in Florida, but an early draft before it went to committee prohibited any course that defines American history as contrary to the creation of a new nation based upon universal principles stated in the Declaration of Independence. And this is part of this anti-1619 project you hear about, like the 1776 project, which is this weird idea that we're supposed to teach people that because the preamble to the Declaration of Independence says, you know, we hold these truths to be self-evident. All people are created equal. That men. this country men. is actually <laughs> men. Sorry. Uh, all men are created equal. That we're supposed to believe that they meant people. Right. Both in terms of gender and that they believed in some sort of universal egalitarian anti-racist belief. And we're supposed to pay attention to that and not – the fact that founding fathers actually owned slaves and that slavery was a fundamental part of American history. And so what interests me, and I guess this goes into how can we think strategically about some of these bills, is the way in which they do seem to acknowledge in their own bizarro world, like you know, seeing everything upside down, they do seem to acknowledge that racism is wrong. Mm -hmm. So much so that even in another bill, the bill in Texas, SB 16, I believe, would bar university professors from compelling students to adopt a belief that any race, sex, or ethnicity, or social, political, or religious belief is inherently superior to any other race, sex, ethnicity, or belief. Now, there's a lot to unpack there, as we say, especially like not going to talk about beliefs being superior to others. That seems hard to do. But one of the other things in that is it seems to suggest that what they're legislating against is saying that a particular race is superior. Now, the odd thing, of course, 
is that they interpret things like intersectionality or critical race theory, reading some of the responses to intersectionality by people like Ben Shapiro, and they believe that intersectionality, the theory of oppressions put forward by people like Kimberly Crenshaw, the idea that race, class, and gender are not just separate things, but they intersect, and that race affects people different ways depending on their class, that gender affects people different ways depending on their race, and so on. The right-wing interpretation of intersectionality is this weird idea that the more intersections you have, the better you are. <laughs> and the less intersections you have, so if you are, like me, a white, cis, heterosexual male, you're supposedly a bad person. The worst person. <laughs> the worst person, which is a total misreading of what people have been trying to do with intersectionality. But beyond that, the fact that these bills, as horrible and as abhorrent as they are, seem to have built in this idea that they are in some weird way anti-racists, whether it be in their weird understanding of American history or in terms of what they're legislating against. And I guess I'm wondering, in thinking about this and thinking about this movement going forward, because this is not going to end with Florida and Texas. This is mm -hmm. going to continue. How to think strategically around the way in which these bills in promoting, and I do think, as I said earlier, I do think they are promoting racist thought. They acknowledge anti-racism as itself being the supposed position you're supposed to occupy. How does that give us something to strategically think about? So that reminds me of an argument that Charles McKinney made several seasons ago on one of the episodes of the podcast, that one thing that we need to do is to take seriously the claim that the Declaration of Independence had universalist aspirations or is based on universalist aspirations, and then hold all of us accountable for Mm -hmm. failing to live up to those universalist aspirations. And so I think there is a strategy there to say, yes, you're right. The Declaration of Independence holds these truths to be self-evident that all men, but that should be understood as the word for human, are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator. But let's understand that not to mean that there is a creator, but that they just come into the world with inalienable rights. And let's hold people to that. And one of the ways that we might be able to hold people to that is to point out the ways in which, although in 17th the Declaration of Independence said that human beings were enslaved in this country for almost 100 years after that. And so how do we come to grips with the universalist aspiration and the racist institution? Yeah, and I would say that one of the other things, that when you deprive people of understanding the contradiction between people being able to articulate supposedly universal ideas about humanity and perpetuate discriminatory, oppressive realities about humanity, when you deprive students of that, you deprive people of real knowledge. Because the question, how did people say things universal but practice something exclusionary at the same time, is a fascinating question. And there are all kinds of philosophical and historical accounts that try to answer that. I mean, the whole bibliography there. And to some extent, to me, that illustrates why pushing a political agenda is not only bad because of the politics it puts forward, but it also deprives students of knowledge. It deprives people of a really interesting question to which there are multiple theoretical and philosophical perspectives. And the question is, how did people who espoused a universal perspective continue to act in contradiction to it?
I think the other part of this strategy is to point out that critical race theory was a methodology being used and sometimes being taught in law schools for decades before Black Lives Matter came on the scene. Yet somehow now we have what in philosophy we call a hysteron proteron. We put the cart before the horse. Namely, now the claim seems to be that critical theory is what brought about the violence that the right wing sees in relation to Black Lives Matter. Again, I just want to say I wish that theory had such power. For me, one of the saddest parts of what I do is the recognition that for 90% of the students, or maybe more, it might not have any effect whatsoever. Can we talk just a little bit about the practical implications of some of these pieces of legislation? I mean, I'm not sure what I would do if a new law was passed in Tennessee that said, you can't teach critical race theory. You can't teach critical gender studies. I'm also not entirely sure. Well, no, I take that back. I am entirely sure what the consequences of defying that would be. But I'm curious how you guys think this is going to actually play out once it hits the floor of the classrooms. Well, I think it's worth pointing out that often with these bills, there are other bills undermining things like tenure. And I think these things go hand in hand because I think this is an assault on academic freedom. And I think that academic freedom is necessary, you know, like the the ability to have critical perspectives on things is integral to how knowledge advances. And I think that that's what is being assaulted here. And I also think that what is happening here is, and I mentioned this briefly in our afterthoughts in the fascism episode, that there is a sense in which, like DeSantis specifically, is pushing to a kind of limit a certain power that governors have, right? Governors do appoint mm-hmm. the boards of their university systems. And for a long time, they did that in the way that they did everything else. Political donors and political friends were rewarded with positions on boards. But the extent to which DeSantis has seen this as the ability to remake the university in his own image has gone beyond what any governor. I mean, in, in Maine, we had you know LePage, who was seen as a very Trumpian governor, but he didn't do anything like this. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, he did. We were critical. He pointed a bunch of people who had no background in education, didn't know what a university was, <laughs> um, and would say idiotic things about how, like, you know, online education is Netflix and brick and mortar universities are blockbuster and we wanted to be like Netflix and stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> Not anything with a targeted political perspective. And now, everything in Trump world, once something is something that someone can do, it's hard to reverse that. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And one effect it already has is I've already seen articles about classes that were removed by their own professors from the curriculum at schools in Florida and other places. I mean, I think there is room to fight these things. Like the language is vague. The language is hopeless. As many people have pointed out, the language around these things about like what critical theory is doesn't pass any kind of scrutiny. But being able to bring it to scrutiny presupposes having something like tenure, having something like a union that can provide things mm-hmm. like lawyers. Without these sorts of things, it is going to do what, unfortunately, the university is doing too much, is that there are very vulnerable people, adjuncts, etc., who are going to bear the brunt of this. Yeah. And in many cases, these are the younger generations exposed to different theoretical perspectives who might be bringing some real innovation around these ideas. And these are the people who is going to hurt first and foremost. And it's going to do what everything else in universities in this country is. It's going to set up a tier system. 
where people outside mm-hmm. of this, people who can go to private liberal arts colleges are still going to be able to get their critical race theory in some situations. Right. And people at public institutions and public institutions in certain states are not going to be able to get this. So it's going to continue what we already see, the extreme bifurcation of higher education as public institutions are turned more and more into job training programs and only private institutions can do the sort of critical thinking that for a brief moment was available to everyone, right? I mean, I think that's an important thing, you know, as Rick was saying earlier about being able to remove from having to make widgets There was a moment where part of the idea of higher education was every person, no matter what they were going to do with their lives, could spend some time engaging with a question about like, what is this world we live in? What is this society we live in? What are we trying to do? What should we be trying to do both individually and collectively with our lives? And given that that for a long time, that kind of thinking only belonged to elites, the democratization of that kind of thinking I think was an important political victory, and now it is being rolled back in front of our very faces. And it is being treated not as it should be, as the rolling back of a kind of democratic ideal, but is being treated as the reaction to all this supposed beliefs about indoctrination and so on and so forth. I also worry that this will have a chilling effect even outside of Florida and maybe even into private institutions so that someone who teaches, let's say, critical race theory or philosophy of race or critical gender studies, that they might now start thinking twice because they don't want to invite that kind of reaction to themselves. And you know what? I'll just go and I'll teach, you know, Victorian literature and forget, you know, (laughs) causing these controversies. And so I worry that it's going to have an even wider spread chilling effect. Yeah, because there were no queers in Victorian literature. No, no. (laughs) (laughs) They were all queer. So apparently we've had a chilling effect on the bartender and she has (laughs) issued last call. And we cannot force her to believe that it's not last call. (laughs) Yet again, we prove powerless in the face of our students. We would like to indoctrinate our listeners into one belief, and that belief is you should support us on Patreon. So we're at (laughs) patreon.com, Hotel Bar Sessions can support us at many different levels. We leave that up to you as the individual. But we would like to use our indoctrinating force to get you to support us on Patreon. That's Jason's critical Patreon theory. (laughs) (laughs) All right, guys. I'll call this a ride. Good night. Bye. Bye.